Welcome to In the Eyes Off. Today we are joined by Spencer R. Scott. Spencer has a PhD in bioengineering and quit his job in cancer research to focus on the climate crisis. Some would describe him as an activist, I know I do. And he is currently working in a very interesting project involving regenerative farming. I hope you enjoy this episode. Spencer, welcome to In the Eyes Off. Can you please tell us a little bit about yourself and why you quit your cancer research job to focus on climate crisis? Um, I was working in cancer research, as you said, and I started reading a lot of books on climate change. Um, particularly, Drawdown was something that made me realize the scope of the problem and as well as a lot of articles, including The Uninhabitable Earth by Wallace Wells. And I increasingly became more concerned with the climate crisis as something that the public wasn't addressing to the scale of the issue. And I felt like my work in, in cancer research, which is still very important, was marginal compared to Uh, the need of climate change. So I, and I mean, it, those are all particular things. Or those are all specific to my lived experience because there's, I'm sure there's cancer researchers where their work is best where they are. And it was, I was someone who I'd been a writer my whole life. I wanted to be more creative Yes, I got my PhD and I was in the scientific research track, but I felt like there was a lot of things that I wasn't fulfilling in my life um, for my creativity and what I wanted to be working on. So um, yeah, I just think that I could use my skills to help humanity at a larger scale. Um, and so I left to, to figure out how I could best do that. So how did you start? Because I remember about a year ago, I came across your profile and you started posting about 101 of climate change and how fast fashion industry was affecting, you know, everything. So what were your first steps? So, yeah, I think my first steps were setting my intentions and my intentions were I have a certain set of skills. I kind of did a survey of, okay, what can I bring to this movement and What I had been doing until then was I was a scientific researcher. So I thought, okay, let's use what I have and offer up my skills as a researcher to, toward any problem that someone may have in the sustainability movement. And I, so I reached out to my friends and a couple friends, or one friend in particular asked me, I have a clothing company and we're a high-end luxury clothing company that when if we don't sell anything called dead stock it's like your dead stock clothing they end up throwing it away or burning it and that's is a very common practice in luxury uh, fashion lines um, because they don't want to dilute their brand by selling it in the secondhand market and so he was being you know involved in this industry but also concerned for the environment wanted to know like, what can we do with our clothes? And so that kickstarted my research into clothing recycling. And then I wanted to learn more about the fashion industry at large. 
And so that's kind of where I began was just this topic of fashion. And so that became the first kind of like research project that I published as a 101. There's so many things to talk about. Like there's so many things involving sustainability that it's hard for anyone to just focus on one specific subject. And you recently started a new project. Well, I don't know if to call it a project or not, but the solar punk farms. Can you tell us a little bit more about it and how you decided to start this one? Yes, that is a combination of both, you know, personal desire to be closer to the land. So I should start what Solar Punk Farms is. Solar Punk Farms is um, a house that my partner and I just bought. It is in a town called Guerneville, and it's about an hour and a half north of San Francisco, California. We are right on a river called Russian River, and we live in an air, one of like the last areas of old growth red, uh, coastal redwoods in the world. And we're about 20 minutes away from the ocean. So it's a really interesting, unique space close to the ocean, a river, beautiful redwoods, um, and pretty close to a major city of San Francisco. And it uh, it's 10 acres. Five of those acres are redwood forest and about three or four are usable land and our vision is to turn the space which before we bought it is basically an empty lot in an old horse property so people before us had horses and there's just a big sand arena for the horses and kind of neglected overgrown weedy pasture and so our vision and honestly as I learned more about the restorative power of like regenerative agriculture and sequestering carbon in our soils, I had a dream of finding degraded land and going through the process of healing it and putting soil or putting carbon back into the soil and bringing life back into the soil. And so we moved up here in July and we are in the very beginning of transforming this property into one, a regenerative farm, two, and like agro t- <clears throat> agro tourist destination. In, in permaculture, they talk a lot about how you can diversify your income streams. It's kind of mimicking a resilience of an ecosystem to have more than one way that you're bringing in revenue to sustain what you're trying to accomplish and so we want to sell food we want to host events we want it to be educational we want it to be entertaining and so that is what we're trying to build at solar punk farms that sounds very interesting and very exciting too the i didn't know it was so close to the ocean yeah it's it's really nice it's only a 20 minute drive so we love that and i don't know if you want me to say a little bit about solar punk in general and why it's called solar punk farms yes that would be very interesting too <laughs> okay so i think to explain it briefly i think everyone's familiar with steampunk and cyberpunk and they're these kind of they're genres so punk is a genre and i'm i'm not sure there's not anyone who's like claimed the originator of solar punk it started in 2010 and started getting popular in 2014 but it's basically a reimagination of our future through a optimistic and uh 
revolutionary lens where instead of living in a degraded cyberpunk or steampunk future, we live in one that is equitable and sustainable and beautiful. Um, And I think the importance of it is the power of imagination and having something to work toward. And I think we need more stories that exist within that world to inspire us to make that vision reality. And I think that's very much needed right now, especially since all of this social justice movements going on, asking for equity, asking for sustainability. And I wanted to ask you, how do you connect all of everything that is happening in the world about social justice to solar punk farms specifically? Yeah, um, so I think everything, all of that is tied together. And I think what's interesting about solar punk is that the punk comes from because there's a great line about like what's so punk about like beautiful regenerative gardens and distributed solar and the answer is that the punk comes in and resisting the current uh, power structures and so in order for us to make that future possible we have to dismantle almost all or maybe all <laughs> of our existing power structures that are based off of extractivism, are based off of oppression of minority groups, are based off of stolen land and slave labor and all of these things that we need to dismantle. And that, to me, is all tied together in social justice. And I think when I think about where power lies, I think one of the most interesting ways to maybe undermine that is to start building power within the groups that are extracted, basically. So there, there's like a, a class of, of humans that this system relies on by extracting labor from them and extracting resources from them. And if we can build power within those groups, I think that will ultimately undermine the systems that prey on them. And I think this is very interesting because you're speaking from an American point of view. But I, for instance, I'm in Mexico, so I'm, I come with a history that of colonization and I work with indigenous people too. Yeah. And it's so interesting because, for instance, what you're doing with solar punk farms is something that I often see in the villages I work with, but they don't have a yeah. name to it. You know, like they don't know this terms of regenerative agriculture or regenerative systems or soil, they just know what they've been doing throughout their whole life, throughout their whole history. So what is your perspective being an American of all the oppression that is going on, environmentally speaking and socially speaking? Yeah, I mean, it's a huge question. And I think something that's been really revolutionary is as a writer and as someone who tries to communicate is defining your we. And I learned that from Mary Hegler, who is part of this amazing podcast, Hot Take. And this is relatable because when I try to make recommendations or talk about, you know, this is regenerative farm. Yes. Like this isn't anything new. It's, I am speaking to a particular type of people to who it is new and trying to communicate to them primarily like white Americans who are wealthy and, and maybe don't have any close cultural ties to land or understanding like, people don't know like where their water comes from and like what that is such a new development in humanity to not understand like where your food comes from and where your water comes from like you know all of these things that are inherent to 
any like healthy, sustainable culture. And so I'm kind of forgetting what the question is, but remind me again. No, don't worry about it. So I was asking like, how do you deem this, especially what you just mentioned, you know, this gap or this breach between our daily life and what indigenous community life would be like, you know, like our closeness to nature. Yeah. So I think that related to this project I've been thinking about in the book that I'm writing, which is heavily inspired by an indigenous thinker, Robin Wall Kimmerer. And the project is called, there's two projects. The book I'm writing is called As If We Were Staying. And it really challenges people to, who have grown up in a society that has provided everything to them as a service where they haven't had to think about sources and supply chains and the damages those supply supply chains are happening or are causing locally or globally or in other countries and really just trying to educate people and and get people interested in realizing the impact of their actions and i think people with wealth and with privilege are the people that really need to be doing this work of learning more about the things that sustain their lives. And so I think that's, I think indigenous people have a very close connection with all of the resources and things that sustain them, whether they're working directly with their hands to grow food, collect water. Like, I think that's kind of the big difference is not being connected to what you consume and what you damage and what you, and help. Yeah. Okay, so do you believe that these two things can be connected to each other in the sense like there's a world in the future in which is full of wealth in a way like we maintain our daily lives the way we know it but also a way in which we respect nature and we don't actually have to undermine our future yeah i i am hopeful that we can i think i don't think there there are certain aspects of modern life in the Western world that I don't think can be sustained. And that's something that as someone who was trained in like a Western university with a scientific mind, you know, we believe that technology will always be able to provide us with whatever we want. And so like the idea is like one day we'll have planes that have batteries or have carbon neutral fuels. And I'm hopeful that we can get these things done. But I think I worry about the continuation of a mindset that hides what it, the damages it does. I mean, the obvious example is batteries for electric cars. You know, everyone thinks that electric cars are the way to maintain our lifestyle of highly individualistic. Everybody has a car, but I mean, a lot of people don't realize, even though there's a lot of reporting on the damages of mining for the rare earth elements that are in batteries for these cars. And so I think we can maintain a life, a happy, amazing lifestyle. It might not look like the one we're currently living. It would probably look more like cities that are everyone is walking around, highly like navigable cities by foot, by bike by things that aren't energy intensive. And so I think, and, and honestly, I think that will be improve people's lives. And so I think that's something I'm really working on is kind of helping people realize that there are better ways to live that don't, might not look like the way 
we live right now. And I, and I think people feel that that's a sacrifice when they have to change anything about their life. They're like, I can't imagine functioning without my own individual car. And so I think that to your question, like, I think we can maintain a good standard of living that is more rooted in understanding our impact on the earth. Um, but it, it ne- probably necessarily doesn't look like the world we live in right now. And that reminds me a little bit of this phrase that I saw in a research, which sort of said, often complex solutions have more environmental impact than the simple ones. And they made this reference to specifically electric cars, how it takes around mm-hmm. 50 or 70 years for the environmental I- impact to be neutral. When, for instance, in Mexico, we could reduce 10% of our annual energetic mix by just reducing 20 kilometers of the average speed limit per year. So you get to thinking like something so simple as driving slower could actually benefit us as a society. But instead, we're investing on these complex ideas to sort of strive in the future. Yeah. And I think that com- that comes into the sacrifice idea, which is replacing a fossil fuel car with an electric car doesn't really seem like a sacrifice. It's, a, it's an upgrade in their mind. And that probably means that someone or something is paying for that, you know, paying for you to have your convenience. And so I'm not sure what the solution to that is other than a revolution of how we view the world and the urgency to which we ascribe our need to address this problem and i just go ahead oh and maybe not just the world but also the people involved since we all often forget that there's people really involved in the supply chains and that every action or thing we buy directly affects them yes absolutely i think that that is something that is really needed is to expand our empathy to people and, and to uh elevate the voices of people who are harmed by these supply chains. Um, And I think there's a lot of good work going on in in the fashion industry about realizing the textile workers work in unsafe conditions for long hours and having more information about who makes your clothes and where it's made and under what conditions I think is becoming increasingly important. And I hope to see that like across supply chains, whether that's food and like migrant workers or miners of elements in Africa or South America and learning about how the things that we just get the positive benefits and all of the negative benefits are, again, we like Americans, Westerners, wealthy Westerners get the benefits to other people's harm. And I, and I think people don't see or maybe refuse to see the harms because then it would force them to make changes to their life that they view as sacrifices. So I think that that is a complex issue. I think that's where the phrase ignorance is bliss actually came from. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And so I think a lot of my work is trying to help people shift the idea that these things are sacrifices and, and instead are actions taken to relieve yourself of cognitive dissonance and to, to act out your values. And I, and I think most people have values that wouldn't allow them to participate in anything that causes harm to people. Um, and so their solution is to remain ignorant about it. But I think 
people know, or at least some part of them understands and knows the harm that they're doing. And I think it, it is ultimately beneficial to re- release that cognitive dissonance and act in alignment with your values across across the board. And so that is the way I'm trying to reframe people's mentality about change um, for climate change and for social justice is that it is an intrinsically rewarding experience to do what you know is right. So (laughs) yeah, that's my soapbox. I believe you have like a very interesting approach to it because as you said, you have like all this scientific research upbringing, but then you come to this like what some people could say totally different aspect in the way you're showing it. So how do you think, I mean, you've said that the more you researched about climate crisis is what got you here and what you're doing now. But how do you think that has also, like your scientific self has shaped the way you're living your daily life? Yeah, and I think there's definitely like a mystical aspect that is missing, mystical and spiritual aspect that is missing from the lived experience of like a scientific atheist Westerner, which is, I think, as a human, there's there's something more that is needed. And I think that that is something I've tried to connect to. And there's there's been just so many scientists before me, like I really model myself after Carl Sagan, who I think was like a very deep emotional thinker and spiritual thinker in, in a agnostic way. And I think that that is maybe generally missing from Westerners who maybe... There's like an increasing number of people who don't have a religion, don't have, and and I think religion has been important for humans to organize, to build empathy, to have a ritualized time where you get together with community, and so and that helps give you purpose and helps like motivate you to to exist in the world, yeah. And so I think as a scientist, uh, it's kind of like one way to look at the world that's really useful in a lot of ways, but it's not complete. And there are things that science can't maybe yet answer. And I think in the meantime, we have words to fill in those gaps, which is, I think, where more like the metaphysical, spirituality, mystical language comes in that I think is really helpful to connect to people in a way that, you know, data doesn't. And so I think science informs what's important. And then the more like spiritual aspect is how to make that meaningful and how to motivate people. And so that's kind of where I've tried to build out my writing is... Uh, my partner calls it resonance. And so I think um, I try to resonate with the deeper part of us that isn't necessarily moved by data um, in a way that scientists are. So, <laughs> so Yeah, and I think it's not just scientists. I think it also relates to economists and everything. I often find that, and I've had economist friends who tell me this, you know, like often you forget that these data are people. Like, it's real people's lives, it's actions. And that's when it becomes a problem. And I think, essentially, if you try to look at it that way, since the Industrial Revolution, that's how we have come to get to this problem. Like, we forget there's human lives at the end of 
these numbers. And I think just being really empathetic to everyone's particular position, I'm trying to be like empathetic of my own journey to this where, you know, I grew up in a society that I am increasingly realizing fed me one very biased narrative and it kind of like sinks into you and you can't see beyond it because you've never had the information to see beyond it. And every, and I, and so I have a lot of empathy for people who are kind of stuck in this worldview and maybe just like need help to get, (laughs) to get past it. And I think in order to do that, it needs to be framed in a way that they feel like it's healing and they feel like it's growth. And so I think that that's kind of how I try to focus on the growth that needs to happen in, and I pretty much focus on America, but. I believe we all do what we can for the people we, like we all have our own audience and our own people who understands the way we speak. So I think even if you're talking to the American society, it's very much needed. And I I mean, I don't like try to exclude anyone. I'm just trying to say that like, I can only see what I've grown up with and in my perspective. And and I know who my audience is because they're people that are around me. And maybe that will be applicable to more people. But it, it can also be when you don't upfront say like, I'm limited by my perspective and by my audience you might step over boundaries and, and, and try to say you're talking to a group of people who are like, I don't know what this person's talking about. They don't, they don't know me. They don't relate to me. Um, and so I think, yeah, I try to really focus on like what I know, who I know, and hopefully I'm goal aligned with people across this, the world working on a, a more sustainable regenerative future and there's a lot of like cross-pollination where we can learn from each other but ultimately I think it needs to be translated to your local community and I think that's also part of self-awareness like you said like it's knowing the start and end of your privilege and what you're missing to learn but that doesn't mean that you're not allowed to research or talk about it or be curious about it yeah absolutely So one of the recurring questions on the podcast is, so what are some of the upcoming challenges you will be facing either professionally or personally? And how do you plan to overcome them? If you have any idea of how. (laughs) Um, Well, one problem is I am, personal problem, I am unemployed. I quit my job. I was working for Paul Hawken, who wrote Drawdown. And it just like ended up not being... Yeah, it ended up not being what I uh, thought it was going to be. And so after six months, I quit. And so I've been for the past couple months focusing on my own work and writing a book. But ultimately, I've I've realized being self-aware that my I don't want to be working alone and siloed alone. I want to be part of a larger group and I, I don't want to start my own group. I want to like join someone that's already been in this space, like knows what they're doing. And like, I just want to lend myself to a project. And so I'm trying to figure out how I can help. And uh, so finding an organization to become a part of. And that's kind of my personal challenge right now. And maintaining motivation to do my own stuff in the meantime and get stuff done. And then larger challenges. Right now I'm really focused on local community. So I just moved to this town. 
I am an outsider. I moved from the big city. I don't know if there's like much prejudice against that here. I think a lot of people are kind of moving around, but I think I want to very much avoid being the person who tries to come into a town, tries to change it, tries to, I don't know. And so right now I'm really focused on like listening to the people that have lived here, been here and trying to figure out, you know, how may I help? And then also how can Solar Punk Farms as a new member of this community add and multiply the benefits uh, that are happening in this town? So I think that is something that I'm really working on, especially because I think there's in climate change, there's like a very difficult problem of scale. You know, do you focus on your individual actions? Do you focus on the entire world, globalized supply chains of everything, um, which can be extremely overwhelming, but I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) It's, it's important to maybe have a loose idea of how the world is existing because it is so connected at this point that, you know, try to pull out any one thing that's connected to everything else. And so I think maybe what's coming out of that is the idea that there's this like idea of trust. Like I have to trust that, you know, you're in, in Mexico city, correct? No, I or mean, like, Merida, that's Southern Mexico. Oh, near okay, the Mayan yeah. Rion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. Um, and so like, I have faith and trust that there are people everywhere doing this work where they are. And so like, I just need to do the work where I am. And I think that there's kind of, there's almost like a continuation of a mentality that like white male Americans have to solve the world's problems. And I'm like, I want to recognize that and step away from that and be like, I just, I just need to be a good community member and like (laughs) focus on solutions that are around me. And I think that global solutions will emerge out of a thousand different solutions everywhere. So, I mean, some, I'm, I'm glad people are working on global problems, but it, not everyone needs to be. And so I think that's just something I'm kind of like processing and, and treading through carefully. And I love that. Like, I love what you said, especially about the part of community, because I believe that at the end, we all want to do our part from where we are. And I think that's exactly how it should be. So we're we're reaching the end of the podcast episode. I don't know if there's anything you want to add or anything you want to. Um, oof, um, don't feel overwhelmed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I I'm just so thankful for you having me on here. It's been so fun, and it's really nice to grow the community. Just to know that there's people everywhere. I, I've talked to people around the world that you know, are interested in in making a lot of movement in this space. And it's really helpful, I think, to know that we're not alone and that we're in this together. And there's so many creative people everywhere that are working on this. And so I think maybe one thing I've been thinking about, and you can cut this out if it's so irrelevant and out of nowhere, but um, one theme I've really been thinking about is the theme of despair. I think that there's like increasingly at least i'm in california we've been dealing with just these crazy wildfires and like everyone in my area is is i think coping with maybe realizing and like accepting for the first time climate change as an issue and i think that it's useful advice that we need to move through despair that it's it's something that 
is both going to happen and is normal and is okay to talk about, but it's also a stage we move through on our way to acceptance and on our way to action. And so it's important to move through it so that we can start putting in the work to um, build hope, which is is built through action and, and not through being a bystander. So that's where I'm at. No, that's I think that's exactly right. You know, like I believe it's important to talk about the hard situations in life, the things that cause you pain, the things that hurt you just as much as the things that bring us joy. Because at the end, it's often these difficult situations that make us grow as a person and as a community. So Absolutely. by sharing these stories, you're actually just helping everyone around you. And if you want to talk more about the wildfires, we actually can do that because I know you moved the like you recently moved to the farm and then you had to move away because of yeah. them. Yeah, so we uh, moved in and then three weeks later we had to evacuate for two weeks. And so the fires came about a, within a mile of our house. And so it was really scary. Yeah, and yeah. And luckily we have some great firefighters in the area and we're surrounded by redwoods that are actually pretty fire resistant. And they, they kind of allowed the fire at a certain point to do a, a, a floor burn, kind of like a controlled burn, but it just was burning like the shrubs and the blackberries and the um, excess growth on the bottom forest floor. So that was good for us. I mean, there's a lot of people that lost their homes. There's a lot of uh, several people that died. So it's like a tragedy in um, that respect. But yeah, it's been, I think more than anything, it's been wild because there are fires all the way up from Southern California, all the way Oregon, Washington into Canada. So it's it's everywhere and the air quality is very bad and it's been bad for weeks. Um, and so like since we got home, so we were evacuated for two weeks, we got home and we've been home for two weeks and there was only like a day or two where I was able to be outside without a mask on. And so I've just been like indoors all day and it's very draining on your emotions to, to not be able. Yeah. Especially because of COVID, like we can't go inside anywhere else. So we like, and we can't be outside. And so we can only be inside in our own home. And so it's just, it's draining. Um, But there's like the silver lining of the fact that I think we had these like very apocalyptic orange skies for a couple of days. And I think that that really like awoke something in a lot of people that, you know, I think people are aware that climate change is an issue, but I think they were able to like emotionally feel it in a way that um, will send them down the path of action grief acceptance being more you know. self-aware and yeah. active yeah. on it yeah um and so we're just we're hoping for clean air soon maybe later this week um but i think it's also been like a really important wake-up call to people to be more um aware of circling back to like how we're treating our land i think people take it for granted um don't think very much about land stewardship or land management Um, people in the aggregate don't. And so I think this is something that, you know, will heighten our awareness of the, the life around us and the world around us is, affects us every day. And we 
have an active role in in having a relationship with it that is reciprocal and regenerative. So hopefully good things will come out of it. Yeah, it's like you said, it's all connected. Spencer, I just want to say that I really enjoyed this conversation. I've well, I've been following you for a while, so I love the approach you have to climate change and the courage that it took for you to quit your job and start these new projects that I'm sure will be beneficial to everyone around you, not just like your community, but I mean, I can talk for myself in which you inspired me great deal to focus more on climate change. So I thank you and I admire you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Georgina. It's been such a pleasure. Yeah, so I hope you have a great day and I'm hoping that you're able to go outside soon. <laughs> thank you so much. You too.